Hello everybody. Welcome back to your first life group session in 2023. And of course, life groups are such an important aspect to our church life and community. There's many things that we can't necessarily experience or do on a Sunday, which you will be able to do in your life groups. There's discipleship that happens, there's prayer, there's worship, there's doing life with one another, there's fellowship, all of these good things. So I pray that you have a great session tonight and I pray that your experience of life group in the year ahead will also be a very good one. Well, we continue with our series on Romans and we're in chapter 10 today. So what I'd like to do, first of all, is to read from verses 1 to 4. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them talking about the Israelites, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What I'd like to do now is to ask you to answer a question. So at the appropriate moment, maybe you could hit pause and make sure that everybody has a piece of paper and a pen and then answer this question. If you were to die tonight and ended up at the gates of heaven and God came out and asked you the question, why should I let you into my heaven? What would your answer be? So hit pause, spend a little bit of time. It's really one sentence answer, maybe two, get that answer down and we'll get back to that later on. The topic for today's study is to do with your part in salvation. In chapter 9, Paul was explaining why only some of God's chosen people, the Israelites, would be saved. And of course, this is a valid question to ask. How come God chose these special people and gave them promises, but some of them would not be the recipients of those promises. Some of them would not be saved. How could this be? And in the process of following his explanation, we've learned about the part that God plays in salvation. God's role is to choose, and he does it according to his own purposes and not according to anyone else's. He decides who will be saved. Nobody, nothing, no one can compel God to save one person or another. And Paul called this God's purpose in election. God's choice, he said, is ultimate. But we also have a part to play in salvation. And in chapter 10, we're going to learn about the part that God calls us to play in salvation. We'll learn in the next few episodes that we are to understand and to submit to God's way of salvation by believing. And then we are to partner God in the salvation of others by praying for the unsaved and by proclaiming the gospel to them. At the end of chapter 9 and going into this early part of chapter 10, Paul is still in the past. And he explains why, up to the time of writing this letter, most Jewish people had not been saved. They had not been put right with God. But as he progresses to chapter 10, Paul starts moving into the present. 
and in the present, he hopes that they will hear the gospel message and believe it. And then in chapter 11, Paul outlines God's vision for the future of Israel. So past, present and future. In this episode, we're going to deal, as we've already read it, with verses 1 to 4 of chapter 10. And this has to do with Israel's ignorance of how to get saved, of how to be put right with God. Do you remember back at the start of chapter 9? We saw how strongly Paul felt about the plight of his fellow Jews. You know, he was so distressed about their state that he said, and this is what he, what he wrote in the beginning of chapter 9, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Paul wishes that he could offer himself, in a sense, as a sacrifice to God, sacrifice his own eternal salvation for the sake of other people. Now, he knew that that wouldn't be an acceptable sacrifice, but this just shows the extent of the feeling that he had for those who were unsaved, the desire that he had for those people to be saved. And I wonder sometimes whether I have that depth of feeling, that depth of passion for people who don't know the gospel to be saved. And then again, at the start of chapter 10, this wasn't a once-off experience that Paul had, this desire for others to be saved. No, he, he mentions it again at the start of chapter 10. He says, brothers, addressing the Christians in Rome, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And the commentators tell us that that phrase, heart's desire, th th this is no glossing over or, or shallow feeling. This is deep emotion. It is a, a heartfelt longing. It's an intense prayer. And J.B. Phillips, one commentator, tries to capture the earnestness of Paul's cry with these words. He says, my brothers, this is how J.B. Phillips puts it, my brothers, from the bottom of my heart, I long and pray to God that Israel may be saved. Folks, we need to play our part in the salvation of others by earnestly praying to God for their salvation. But notice that when Paul prays, he prays that they may be saved. He recognizes that no matter how much he wants it, salvation depends ultimately on God's choice and God's work. And yet God chooses to work through our prayers. Our prayers make a difference. Paul would not be praying. He would be not be setting this example of praying for people who are not saved unless he believed that those prayers made a difference. Prayer causes things to happen that would not otherwise have happened if we did not pray. It's a bit like uh, when I wanted to repair the car uh, when Matthew was a little boy. And I'd say, Matt, would you like to come and help me repair the car? And he'd say, yeah, yeah, I'd love to do that. You know, I could repair the car by myself. I was quite able to do that. But for the sake of the relationship, for the sake of being with Matt, I chose to repair the car with him. And so he would do things to help me. And afterwards, both of us could honestly say that we repaired the car. And so it's the same. God um, renders it certain that um, certain people will be saved, but he chooses to do it 
through our prayers. They do make a difference. Now, let's think about Paul praying for those who are not saved. The reason why he prays is because they aren't saved. But why? Why weren't they saved? And that's what Paul begins to explain in verse 2. Let's read. For I bear them witness. Paul could give expert testimony concerning the Jews because he was a Jew. And what was his testimony? They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. He understood their condition intimately. Namely, that they were zealous for God, extremely passionate, they expended a lot of energy, they were very sincere, but all of this was not based on knowledge. No, it wasn't based on knowledge of the truth. Folks, hear this today. Zeal is not enough if it is based on ignorance, ignorance of the truth. In fact, zeal without knowledge is what we call fanaticism, and it can be very harmful. I might decide, for example, to go and start the Zero Gravity Society and spend all my time and my effort preaching to people that there is no such thing as gravity. Come and join my society. But you know what? Even if people believe my lies, even if they don't believe in gravity, if they step off a building, they will fall to their death. Zeal, which is not based on knowledge, is fanaticism and it's harmful. It's not enough to be genuine. It's not enough to be sincere. Paul wrote about his own fanaticism in this way in Galatians 1 verse 14. He said, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. And yet in the preceding verse, verse 13, he said, I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Paul knew the Old Testament scriptures intimately. He knew the Pentateuch. He knew the Bible as it was at that time. He was zealous and yet he didn't see that Jesus was the Messiah and that the whole of the Old Testament was pointing towards Jesus. He didn't see that the, the Gentiles were going to be included in God's family. And so as the church started to grow, he persecuted it zealously. He couldn't be faulted. So the Israelites were not saved despite their zeal for God. But why? Because their zeal was based on ignorance, it wasn't based on the truth. I just wonder how many zealous, sincere people there are who are headed on an eternal separation from God simply because of ignorance. How many people are there in the church who are ignorant about God's way of salvation? They're very sincere people, they're very good people, fine people, but they could well be headed to an eternity separated from God because they're not aware of God's plan for salvation. How can a person be zealous and sincere and yet unacceptable to God? And, and to answer that question, we need to get specific about the ignorance of the Jews because that's exactly what Paul does in the next verse, in verse 3. He says, for, he's explaining, being ignorant of the righteousness 
of God. That's what they were ignorant of. They were ignorant of the righteousness of God. And the righteousness of God is his moral perfection. It's the fact that he is absolutely perfect. He has never sinned in the past. He doesn't sin in the present and he will never sin in the future from eternity past to eternity future. And he expects his children to be the same. 1 Peter 1 verse 15. But as he who called you, you, is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 1 Peter 1 verse 15. God expects us to be perfect. He expects us to be perfect externally and internally. Externally in terms of what we do and what we don't do, but internally also in terms of our motivations and desires. It isn't enough to do the right thing if we are motivated in the wrong way. For example, Jesus taught that it's not enough to shun physical adultery. You mustn't even look at a person of the opposite sex with lust in your heart. Can you see? It's not just the external, it's also the internal. Now, being ignorant of all of this, the Jews made an effort. They sought to establish their own righteousness. That's what Paul says there. And it fell way short of God's because nobody is morally perfect as God is. God's standard, his pass mark is 100%. How did the Jews try to do this? How did they try to establish their own righteousness? Well, they took the do's and the don'ts of the law and they tried their best to observe that. But that wasn't enough to put them into right standing with God because God said, if you want to be put right through, through the law, then you need to obey the law 100%. You must never ever have broken any of the laws in the past and you must never do it in the future either. 100% pass mark. But there's people from other religions who stick to the teachings of their religion, the do's and don'ts of their religion. Folks, that is not enough. Even if we have our own code of conduct, we know that we haven't lived up to that code of conduct perfectly. And that's why God sees that we are not righteous in his sight. Be perfect as I am perfect. But what is the alternative, folks? What is the alternative to establishing your own righteousness? We see it there. It is submission to God's righteousness. That is what we are called to. But what is it? <laughs> what is God's righteousness? And how do we submit to us? Well, Paul wants us to see that Jesus is God's righteousness. Take verse 3 and 4 together. Just look at it there on your screen. Verse 4 begins with the words, For Christ. And that word for is a connective. It connects verse 3 and verse 4. The Jews did not submit to God's righteousness because they refused to submit to Jesus. If you want to submit to God's way of salvation, you need to submit to Jesus. He needs to become your Lord and your Savior. And that's because the righteousness of God is a state that is achieved once you have submitted to Jesus. And in that state, you are clothed 
in Christ's righteousness. God takes, if you like, your CV, your life record, which is unholy because there's all sorts of mess-ups and sin included in it. He takes it out of the book of your life and he throws it away and he gives you Christ's perfect record so that when you stand before God, that book is opened, he looks, he sees Christ's life record and he says, this person is perfect. But what does it mean to submit? Two things. By recognizing that your record, your CV, your righteousness will never be good enough for God. You can never earn a righteousness that is good enough for God. That's the first thing we need to recognize when we submit. And then the second thing that we need to do when we submit is by believing in Christ, believing that he has made a way for us to receive his righteousness, his perfect record. And we know that the, refu the Jews refused to do this because Paul told us all about it, didn't he? Just a few verses before at the end of chapter 9. That's the passage that precedes what we're looking at today. He says in verse 30 there in chapter 9, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. What is this righteousness? A righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law or that righteousness for that matter. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it was based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. God's righteousness, folks, is a righteousness that is by faith. Verse 30. But Israel did not succeed in reaching the law that would lead to righteousness. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but rather as though it were based on works. Verse 32. Instead of their putting their faith in the foundation that God had laid in Zion, in Jerusalem, Zion is another word for Jerusalem, they stumbled over it. What was the foundation that God laid in Jerusalem? Well, it was Christ crucified. This is clear from Paul's language in other letters as well. Whenever he mentions that stumbling stone, he's referring to Christ crucified. Look at 1 Corinthians 1.23. He says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. And so it's clear that in verse 32 there, Paul was referring to Christ. But can we be sure, folks, that the stumbling involved a lack of belief? Well, just look there at verse 33. Paul is quoting a combination of two Old Testament verses, Isaiah 28:11 and Isaiah 8:14. And there he says, as it is written, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. That's how we can be sure that the stumbling involves a lack of belief, a lack of submission to Jesus. You know, it's very embarrassing to trip up um, just physically. I, you, maybe you can think of a time when you were in front of other people in public and you, and you slipped and you tripped up. 
that's just a physical failing, isn't it? But to trip up morally can be even more embarrassing and it can be shameful. But to avoid this, whoever believes in him, that is in Christ, will not be put to shame. We won't be put to shame. You don't need to be ashamed when you stand in God's presence because you are robed in the righteousness of Christ. However, this is so important. If you establish your own righteousness, then you stand before God in that righteousness. It's not God's righteousness and it's just like wearing dirty clothes. All of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous acts, whatever we try to do, are like filthy rags, dirty clothes. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Isaiah 64 verse 6. Let's close today with verse 4. He writes that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. The end of the law as a means to try and be put right with God. But it's to everyone who believes. Paul has already told us that if we want to use a set of do's and don'ts to attain righteousness, to become acceptable to God, to earn our salvation, then we've got to obey the law perfectly. But nobody can. And that's why God has made another way for us to be righteous. And it's Jesus Christ. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. I love the words of the song that we often sing at harvest. When Christ shall come with trumpet sound, oh may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. This is wonderful news. It's so good to know that we can be clothed in Christ's righteousness, that the righteousness of God does not depend on our efforts, but on the work that Jesus did, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Just in closing, what I suggest you do now is hip stop, go to the answer that you gave at the beginning of this teaching, and see whether it needs to be changed. And if it does, write a new answer underneath and then use that as a basis for discussion in your group. Thank you so much for signing in and I pray that you have a wonderful time together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.